Romans chapter 8, and this morning we will be in verses 31 to 39. Um, as I said in my email to you all, this, uh, it's kind of sad for me um, because I won't get to preach this to you anymore. Uh, you know, there's so much of the other scriptures that we got to get to, but um, Romans 8 is almost like the reason that you preach Romans is to get to this wonderful chapter. And so as we leave it next week, um, I, I just want to encourage you, as Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, don't let the words stay on the page. Um, however it, it works for you, maybe it's writing it out on index cards and rotating through it, uh, you know, four or five verses just a day. I, I feel, Christian, that this has to be impressed upon you. It is this beautiful climax to the problem of humanity. These first eight chapters, if you think about it, what he did in, in chapter 1, uh, 16 and 17, is he introduces us to the gospel. He says, I'm not ashamed of it. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Uh, in the midst of God's wrath being poured out, in the midst of the brokenness and the uncertainty and the looking at a world that is not what it should be, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed. It is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek Verse 17, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now those of you who miss adult Sunday school, Jeff and I, we didn't talk and uh, you know, we, didn't, we, were not, we were not like in cahoots as he talk, took this phrase from the Old Testament and said, this is, this is, this is the life that God gives us, a, a life for faith. This is living through faith. So what we've seen in Romans 8, really, is an explanation of this concept. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. And then he pours it out. He says, uh, no one else is free from the wrath of God. Nothing you do, no other religion. There is no other way. There is no one without excuse. And then the floodgates are open. As we have this wonderful promise. Where he says, but now a righteousness from God has been manifested. I don't know about you, I just got goosebumps saying it. It is a beautiful thing. A righteousness from God. We can't get it on our own. We can't perform. We can't find other ways to get around our sin problem. And so now, a righteousness from God. Jesus himself is revealed as the fulfillment of God's law and given to us. And so when we get to chapter 8, it, it is just this beautiful outpouring of a summary of all of these things. And especially when we started even back in verse 26 of this chapter. The Spirit, the Son, and the Father, all in agreement, all confessing, God is for you. You are mine. The gospel is true. Have security, O Christian. Don't go back and forth. Don't worry back and forth. Don't listen to other voices. God is for you. And so when we come to verses 31 to 39. We are, we are now in, the, in kind of the, these last of 15 different affirmations that the apostle is making concerning our security. So if you remember, uh, when, when I started back in uh, 8, 8 1, I said uh, this whole chapter can be summarized as the absolute security of the children of God. And so for a while there, um, it was part five, part six, and I think I stopped doing that. But if I kept doing it, 
We're at part 10 today. The absolute security of the children of God. Unquestionable security. I'm going to um, read starting at verse 28 this morning uh, to give us some of the immediate context. Um, so let's stand for the reading of God's word if you are able. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom God foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. In order that we might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also Glorified. Our text this morning, verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justified. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God? Who indeed is interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No! In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The grass withers and the flower fades. The word of our God will stand forever. You may be seated. Verses 26 to 27, the Holy Spirit guarantees that our eternal life is forever. In verses 28 to 32, the Father guarantees that our eternal life is forever. In verses 33 to 34, the Son, Jesus Himself, guarantees that eternal life is forever. I said these are the last of 15 statements um, that, that, that signify the security of the believer. Uh, in, in verses 28 to 30 that I read earlier, I'm just going to briefly run through them. We were told that God is working. We're told, secondly, He is working for the good. We're told, thirdly, that He's working for the good in all things. And that statement, all things, you'll see is picked up in the rest of this. All things, right? All things is, is, is explained in our text this morning. Uh, fourthly, that he is doing this for those who love him. And fifthly, that all of this is according to his purpose. That those he has called, he has given a purpose. He has a purpose in us. And then he goes on, he says, these are the ones that God foreknew. Last week we talked about that. God foreloved us. He predestined us. And he predestined us in his purpose to be conformed to the image of his son. When we talk about that purpose, even last couple of weeks, that, that it gives the Christian hope amidst everything else in their life being a mess. One thing after another falling apart. 
I am being conformed into the image of his son. His call to us, eighthly, was irresistible. Those he called, we find out he himself justifies. And those he justifies, he glorifies. And that's where we left off last week. And so uh, this morning, uh, he responds with these five questions. And it's common in Paul's style. He'll, he'll give truth. He'll say, here's the things that are true. Here's what it means for you. And then he responds. He says, these are, the, these are the questions that might come up in your mind. Um, in your introduction, I wrote the ultimate guarantee. Does anybody remember Uncle Henry Knives? Uncle Henry was a company that made pocket knives from 1964 all the way to 2004. I used to get Field and Stream. I was born in 1964. I didn't get it when I was born, but I got Field and Stream uh, when I was a young man living at home. My lawn mowing money, I had a subscription to Field and Stream. Uh, and Field and Stream would have advertisements for Uncle Henry knives. Now, I don't know if every boy goes through it, but all of mine did, and I did. Uh, there was a time when a nice pocket knife was amazing. And some of the old guys would have these pocket knives they kept in their, in their pocket, you know, and they had, they had sharpened them so much that you did pull them out, it'd be almost like a toothpick, you know? And um, old grandpas always had a pocket knife, right? And uh, I, Uncle Henry knives were guaranteed against defect, but in the bottom it said, we have the ultimate guarantee. Guaranteed against loss. Now, me being an upright Christian boy thought, so I can get two of them for the price of one? <laughs> wow! Now, I couldn't afford one, so I, I figured that's how they did it, right? It was so expensive that, you know, it, it, whatever. But I still remember that, guaranteed against loss. And so as I was thinking about this text, I looked up Uncle Henry, and they quit doing that. Uh, their guarantee was only as good as the company could make the knives, and only as good as the company could stay in business making these knives to give away. Some company in China has picked up the name. But as far as that guarantee, it wasn't the ultimate guarantee. And yet here we have what I would say is the culmination of God's guarantee to his people. It does seem too good to be true, and it was with Uncle Henry pocket knives. It does seem too good to be true for the Christian and the gospel, but it is indeed true. The sermon in the sentence this morning is that the Christian's confidence is not found in our love for God, which is fickle, frail, faltering, but in God's love for us, which is steadfast, faithful, and persevering. And so he has five questions. Really, the, the first question is, is kind of fleshed out by the other four. The first question kind of sets up. But, but here, here it is. You, 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 um, you have what is given in Romans 1 all the way through 30. You have a wonderful promise given. That we hold on to this. That as a, as a believer, I can know for certain that all the things that are going on have part of God's purpose, and they are ultimately for my good. Now, when um, I present the gospel to people, to non-Christians, I've been convicted that sometimes in my mind, I, 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 I weigh in the balance 
what is this person going to have to give up to follow Christ? And I confess to you this week, I have been thinking that often I try to make it look like it's not much to give up. And I know sometimes I, I, I definitely want a person to grasp the power of the gospel. It's not just, oh, I, I won't be punished for my sins, um, but, but there is a glorious eternal future that awaits for me that, that life right now can be joyous, such that if, if I am to give this up, or if I am to give that up, or if I'm not allowed to do this anymore, who cares? I have life with Jesus. But I know sometimes in my mind, I weigh that out. I'm like, oh, I don't want to talk to them about uh, their, 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 their moral responsibilities. I don't want to talk to them uh, uh, about the way they might cheat here and there. I, I, just, I just wanted to know Jesus. And um, I, I think sometimes that's how we come into the faith. But then when you have tasted and seen when you've had that dark night of your soul and you've wept out to the Lord and His grace has been sufficient for you and you have been assured that He still loves you in spite of all that you have done, I think what happens, I know with me and I think with mature believers, is the question so much isn't, what do I have to give up to live with Him? But will he ever leave me? Will he ever leave me? Uh, I'm, I'm afraid that it, it, this is such an amazing, wonderful blessing to be in his covenanted community. Be adopted as his child. Be, be convinced that in the, in the, not just in the courtroom of God, but in the courtroom of anything, anywhere, anybody. The Heavenly Father will declare me righteous. The fear then becomes, what if I lose it? And so that's really this first question. Who can stand against God's children? And I love the way it's set up. He just says, what can we say to these things? Right? It's like, what, what on earth? He does that again in his teaching style in chapter 6. He was like, um, when, when the gospel is presented in chapter 6, he, he, he says, what then? Could we sin that grace would increase? Right? And, and what then? What do we do with this? In 7.7, 7, is the law then sin? Uh, so he's saying here, now, what can we say to these things? Who can stand against us? There was a particularly hard move for me as a child. We moved from what I would consider heaven on earth, rising fawn Georgia at the foot of Lookout Mountain, beautiful mountain cottage on the side of a spring-fed lake. Uh, the guy had a couple thousand acres, half of it was mountain and half of it was pasture. And I would get up in the morning and spend my days out in the woods, chasing trout in the stream, catching bass in the afternoon, building little forts all over the place. I was in heaven. And we moved to the slums. It was awful. We moved to this just terrible, dirty, gross place. Um, my folks got a good deal on a house that they were going to flip. 
and it needed to be flipped and burned. But, it, <laughs> but they did this beautiful job chipping away. I remember she took out, they took out tile, like, like, like tile that had glue on it. And my brother and I sat there with screwdrivers on each tile. We cleaned all the tiles left. And then we had to make bricks without straw. <laughs> you get it. I went from this beautiful place to this horrible place. A beautiful place of, of freedom and glory to an awful neighborhood. And then an awful school. And I would come home and I would cry to my mom. Mom, please, can we go back? And she's like, no, no, um, we didn't own that place. Someone was letting us live here while we were working on just getting this place that we're living in now uh, legal for us to live in. But I was assured of one thing, that she loved me, that my tears meant something, um, and I was sure that I wasn't being left. And oh, Christian, that surety is to be yours. And we dishonor the glory of our God when we doubt it because our current situation is less than what we want. And so he says it here. What then can we say to these things? If all these things are true, if God's for us, and who can be against us? Now, he doesn't say if God in the sense of he might be for us. No, he is making a comparison. He is saying, since God is for you, does it ever matter who is against you? Since God is for you, there is, there is, there is no one, no thing that can be against you that will stand up against him. God is for you. If God is for us, who can be against us? Maybe that's the summary of all eight chapters this far is God is for us. And so he sets that question up. Uh, it, it, what can we do? God's for us. Who then can be against us? And then the second question, would our God withhold anything good from his children? Verse 32, he who did not spare his own son, doesn't that sound like Romans 5, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also graciously give us all things? If God is for us, the second question comes up then. Why is it so hard? Right? God is for us. Okay, he is for us. But there are days it feels like he is not for us. There are days it feels like he has forgotten us, that he doesn't hear us. There are days where it definitely feels like those who have set themselves against God seem to be doing better. And he says to them, Oh, my children, don't ever, ever forget that God the Father delivered his Son for you. God is for us. Who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son. Will he not graciously give us all things? There again we have things. What do we say to these things? We say to these things, God is for us. Who can be against us? What about these all things? Well, if God did not spare his son, will he not graciously give us everything necessary? was the summary of chapter 5. I love Octavius Winslow. When he, when he comments on this, he says, Who delivered Jesus up to die? 
not Judas for money, not Pilate for fear, not the Jews for envy, but the Father for love. You might even be recalled to Genesis 22, when God says, I, 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 I'm going to test Abraham to see how much he loves me. And what does he do? He says, Abraham, take your son, your only son, Isaac, and sacrifice him to me. And then as Isaac has, uh, as Abraham has the knife, the angel of the Lord says, stop. One of the beautiful now I know statements. God looks down at Abraham and says, now I know. I know you love me more than your very own son. Right? All of Abraham's flocks, his servants, his money, what was closest to his heart, God said, I am closer to your heart. You trust me more than the very life of your son. What a beautiful setup it was for us who would follow. How would our sin be taken away? How would our adoption be secure? God would send his own son. How foolish to look at the day-to-day stuff and say, you don't love me, God. You haven't given me this. You don't love me, God. Otherwise, you take this away. What do we need to remember as Christians? He didn't withhold his son. Thirdly, who can bring a charge against God's children? Verse 33, who will bring a charge against God elect? It is God who justifies. What a wonderful blessing. It's not what people say about me, but who can bring a charge? And the answer is no one. No one can bring a charge. Not because I'm innocent, not because I'm perfect, not because I'm above average, not because I'm a victim, not because I've tried really, really hard, or because I'm immune to the law. But it is God who justifies. Whatever charge is brought against the children of God, it is He who justifies. It is well with my soul. I think we sang that last week or a couple weeks before. My sin, oh the bliss, this glorious thought, my sin not in part but the whole, it is nailed to the cross, I bear it no more, Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O my soul. Fourth question is similar to it. Who then can condemn God's children? And, and, and the answer here is, uh, in, in, the, in, in, in anyone seeking to condemn us, he says, you've got to remember the work of Christ. And so he goes into this just brief theological excursus. Who is to condemn? Do you not remember, first of all, that Christ died? So all that we could be condemned for? He died to cover. Do you not remember even more than that, that he was raised from the death? His his death was sufficient. His death was complete. It was accepted. It was received. He was raised from the dead by the Father as a demonstration of the completeness of his atonement and God's satisfaction. Thirdly, he's now sitting at the right hand of God the Father. Someone going to condemn you, Satan, known as the accuser of the brethren? The son is sitting at the Father's side. He is resting from his finished work, and he's sitting in the place of highest honor. And fourthly, he is interceding for us. Whose condemnation do you dread? Whose condemnation do you fear? Who do you give too much credence to your well-being and their opinion of you? I don't know if this is true or not. I probably should ask Clayton beforehand, but he's had a busy week. 
you know, in the law, in a court of law, or every, every time you watch, watch it on TV, like, the person who's being charged, they always want to take the stand. Like, I don't know if that's true or not, but, but in TV, in TV land, they always want to, they always want to take the stand. And, and the, the defending attorney's like, no, 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 don't take the stand. They'll rip you to shreds. Don't take the stand. And the person's like, I'm innocent. I'm innocent. I, I want to tell my story. Like, no, don't. And then what happens? They always take the stand. They get ripped to shred and they look at their, and he's like, I told you so. Now I got to clean up from all your mess, right? What a beautiful picture here that who takes the stand? And I know Christians, sometimes we feel like we, we have this, I, I need to justify myself. If they only knew why I said what I said, if they only knew my background, if they only knew that I'm trying, if they only knew, we don't have to worry about it. Jesus himself takes the stand. He takes the stand on our behalf. He is the one interceding. He is the one who has justified us. I say you've got to remember these two things. Could there be any more significant punishment ever inflicted upon anyone in any universe anywhere than the perfect Son of God being sacrificed on our behalf? Could there be any more significant hope for us than that Son who gave Himself for us is sitting at the Father's hand interceding for us? Fifthly, Uh, And this is the longest part of the text. Can anyone separate God's children from his love? I love it that he asks that question. I love it that he doesn't ask that question at the very beginning. His gospel didn't start with God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Now let me defend God because your life isn't wonderful. No, he starts with the basic human problem. We're fallen, we are broken, and we've rebelled against the Lord. We've chosen laws that we like to keep. We've hidden ourselves from our own faults and the faults of others. But now he comes to it. You have tasted this love. I've explained it to you. I've told you that there is now, therefore, no condemnation for you in Christ Jesus. The law of the spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death. And so this question, it, 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 it kind of teases us. Is there anything that would separate God's love from me. And I, I, I love this. It's really done in two parts here. The first is the first person plural, who will separate us. And then uh, in verse 37, 38, it's his personal confession. Listen again to this. This is the answer to the question. Can anything separate us from the love of Christ? Verse 35 shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword as it is written for your sake we are being killed all the day long we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered that, that comes from Psalm 44 it's one of the Psalms of the sons of Korah an interesting study on Korah you might remember that name that was someone who rebelled against Moses uh, and it's about seven generations from that. You have these sons. I think they're right, 10 or 12. Do you know how many Psalms, David? 10 or 12? Yeah. Uh, some of them are Psalms of Lament, but very much deep and beautiful and loving the Lord. And this is written as they are recounting, God, you warned us, you told us, our family saw this. Have you turned your back on your people? It's beautiful that he weaves it right in here. Like, we're not the only ones. 
<laughs> Paul and the Romans are not the only ones. Israel looked on their sin and they wondered, have we irrevocably removed ourselves from this God who is steadfast in his love? Is it too late for us? And so he says, no, 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 no. Verse 37, in all of these things, we're more than conquerors. Through him who loved us. And then here is his personal affirmation. And Christian, I want this to be yours. I really want you to be able to say this. Maybe put it on the mirror, put it on your car, somewhere. You just, you got to be able to say this. I am sure. Not because I'm good enough. Not because I've tried hard enough. But because God is good enough. I am sure. Death nor life. Angels, rulers. Things that are present. Or anything that is to come. Or any powers nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. He's closed this chapter and this whole section on the gospel, our need of it, the provision of it, the beauty of it. And the next section that we start in chapter 9 is probably, the, the you know, it, you can look at it as saying, now, now what? What does life look like? Right? So it's the, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Uh, the just will live by faith in the end of verse 17. And, 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 and going on from here in chapter 9 all the way through 16, we're going to be looking at that. Now, how do we live? How are we living in community? How do we deal with rulers? How do we deal with, the, with uh, Israel? How do we deal with promises that seem to be not fulfilled? Uh, how do we then live because of this? But this has to be certain. This doesn't depend on us understanding those. Us understanding those depends on this. Us willfully giving ourselves as the martyrs that went before us, who joyfully went to their deaths. They weren't wondering, is it worth it? What does it cost me? They went singing because they knew <coughs> there was nothing, height nor depth, nor powers, nor loss of job, nor loss of spouse, nor abusive children, nor there is nothing, not my sin, not the deep-rooted sins that I've struggled with for 20, 30 years. There is nothing, O oh Christian, will separate you from the love of God. And so I want to leave you with that question. Are you convinced? Are you convinced? You should be convinced if you've repented of your sins and put your trust and faith in Jesus Christ. You should be convinced that he is about the purpose of making you into the image of his son. He does that through the work of the Holy Spirit. We call it sanctification. And before us, we have this term called glorification, who we will be. Now, here's what's happened. Here's how this happens. We are sanctified by applying these truths all the time to our life. And so when the Spirit brings up sinful behaviors, sinful patterns, worries, and doubts, the Spirit is doing that to conform us into the image of His Son. He's doing that saying, you can now get rid of this. And I know what we do. I do the same thing. We get rid of it and we feel pretty good until Wednesday. Right? Wednesday, the Kuiper water heater goes out. Just as I said, I think everything that could be broken in our house has been repaired. We're so excited about it. And I pull in the truck, and water is pouring out of my water heater. And I'm like, what? 
Right? I get ready to complain. You can't complain when you're the pastor of the church because everyone here has something worse going on right now. So you can't even go to say, hey, you know what happened to me? Oh, sorry. You're, yeah, you're, you're dealing with that. Hey, you know, oh, yeah. Right? You can't even do that. And you doubt God. It's idiotic. Right? Lord, what are you doing? You know, we're taking money out of the vacation farm with our kids that we love in January, and I'm buying a stinking water heater. I don't want to do that, God. What are you doing? No, Mark. In all things, the petty things that can be fixed by writing a check, the deep things that you've wrestled with for as long as you've known the Lord, none of those things will separate our God from us. And so as we read in that poem, I lose my hold and then come down darkness and cold and rest. Let me no more my comfort draw from my frail hold of thee and this alone rejoice with all thy mighty grasp of me. Let's pray. Oh, Father, thank you. We have no excuse to doubt the value of the blood and the body of Christ. Your care over us. It, it, it just, it's so hard at times, Father, for us just to, to believe it. It's so different from the love we have for one another. As much as we try, you know, Father, that our love for one another is often dependent upon their performance. And yet your love for us is dependent upon the performance of your son who finished his work. May we rest in that. May we celebrate it now, Father, with these elements as we drink the cup. May we, may we answer that question in unison that I am convinced that we are convinced. This thing we've settled in our heart and our mind, that God who has promised is faithful. He will fulfill what he has promised. That there is nothing that will separate you from your people. We thank you, Father, that's true. I thank you as a pastor that I get to share this good news with the people. Every week and every day of the week, that you will not let our sins get between us and yourself. You will not let our doubts and our trials, you will not let our backsliding and our idolatry you will pursue, and you will make us right. Oh, Father, thank you for these promises. And now, as we take the bread and we drink the cup, Father, may we feast on that absolute reality and power of your Son on our behalf. And we pray in his name. Amen.